Natch, you've been rowdy all morning now. Somebody's been excited about being back in church. Praise God. Amen. Amen to God. I am um, I'm going to attempt to preach this morning an entire series in one sermon. That still gets you out on time. So well, the first thing I'm going to do is turn some lights on because I don't like preaching in the dark. There we go. Yeah, I don't want y'all falling asleep on me. So this morning's text is going to come out of Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 3 is the famous story of the man at the gate called Beautiful. You know the story. Most of you are familiar with the story how Peter and John were on their way to the temple to pray. They met a crippled man, a crippled man that needed uh, something more than what he thought he needed. And they, uh, through Peter's uh, interpretation of healing power through Christ, he helped him up. The man ran off running, leaping, and praising God. And that's how we leave this brother. After he's healed, he runs off running, leaping, and praising God. And he goes into the temple and starts telling everybody about what had just happened. And it caused all kinds of problems in the temple. Because the Sadducees and the Pharisees were not overly excited that Jesus Christ was being preached, much less healing people. So they came and arrested Peter and John. And in the first part of chapter 4, Peter and John get hands laid on them and not in the biblical sense. They take them to jail. They, they keep them overnight. On the next morning, the Bible says, they bring them in front of the uh, Sanhedrin and they want them to testify or to uh, give an account for themselves and the Bible says that Peter opened his mouth and began to tell them we didn't do any of this in our name we did this in the name of Jesus Christ and because we used his name people are being healed and verse 13 is where I want to take my text for, for this message this morning chapter 4 verse 13 now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John they perceived that they were not college graduates. They perceived that they didn't go to the highest technical school in the land. They perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men. And they marveled. And this is the text, uh, portion of the text that I want to take my entire sermon from. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. As I began to work on this message, like I said, I intended to preach this message as a series. And you're going to see why here in a minute when I get over into the book of James. There's seven things I'm going to share with you this morning about what it looks like when we reflect Jesus. And we find them all in the book of James. Now, there's more than seven. I could go on and on. I could have made a 20 or 30 week series out of what the Bible shows us as uh, how do people know we have been with Jesus? Exactly what is it in us that reflects Him? Or is there enough of Him reflecting from us that those who see us would do like they did Peter and John? They realized they had been with Jesus. Who do people think you've been with when they come in contact with you? Who are you reflecting? When, when, when you are on Facebook, when you're in the line at the grocery store, when you're at work, who exactly do people think you've been spending time with because the people you've been spending time with the folk that you have given uh, uh, credence to in your life they become a reflection and, and, and when people look at you they see part of them and so this, this spoke to me this, this passage convicted me 
convicted me enough that I thought I would bring it and share it with you. Hoping it convict you as well. They saw that they had been with Jesus. They saw a reflection of Jesus Christ. Now, without a doubt, the biggest problem that we have in the church today is a lack of spiritual maturity. We get ourselves into all kinds of problems by saying immature things, by making immature decisions, and by acting in immature ways. Can I get an amen? We need to become spiritually mature. As a matter of fact, we need to grow up. If we just want to put it in West Virginia vernacular, we just need to grow up. We could solve a whole lot of our problems in our lives, in our marriages, in our churches, in our nation if we would just simply quit acting childish and grow up a little bit. Spiritually mature people reflect Jesus Christ. If you want to know what it means to be spiritually mature, we throw that word around from pulpits from time to time. If you want to know what it means to be spiritually mature, it means that you reflect Jesus Christ. But this is not a new problem. No, no, no. If you go back to the early church, you'll find that Paul the Apostle was writing a letter to the church at Corinth, and he rebuked them for the same thing. He said, I have to feed you with milk because you are babies. He said, you should be on the meat of the word by now, but I have to keep giving you milk. He said, because, and he uses this word, because you're so carnal, which means you are, you are immature. You're saved, but you still act like you ain't. I know that ain't good English, but it is good preaching. He said, you, you act like somebody who has not been redeemed yet. You, you need to grow up, is what Paul tells them. So, because God's will for your life and mine is to reflect the Son. When Jesus was here, he said, I didn't come to preach about myself. I came to preach about the one who sent me. I came to show him to you, and you should be showing me to the world. That's what Jesus' mission was. He said, I came to reflect the Father who sent me. And you and I, the church, the disciples of Christ, we are in order to, uh, to, to spread his gospel. You can't just beat people over the head with a big Bible. You have to be a reflection of the one who sent you. So how do we reflect Jesus? Well, I'm glad you asked. By becoming spiritually mature. So let me begin this morning, before I define to you out of the book of James what spiritual maturity looks like, let me first tell you what spiritual maturity is not. Because a lot of people have a, have a misconception that spiritual maturity is two things that it absolutely is not. Number one, spiritual maturity is not measured by a length of time. I have met people, I've been doing this for a minute, I, I'm not wet behind the ears. I've got over two decades of pastoral ministry. I've been preaching this gospel for 25 years, and I've been uh, pastoring over 20. I know a little bit about something. And let me say up front, spiritual maturity does take time. You shouldn't get saved on Sunday, start telling me how to run the church on Monday. You, you do, it does take time. Even the Bible says Jesus grew in wisdom and favor. So it does take time. However, here's the caveat and the warning. You can grow older without growing mature. I have met folks that have been in church longer than I've been breathing air, and they are still babies, and they act like it. The second thing that spiritual maturity is not, it's not something you can see. It's not in a tie. It's not in a suit. It's not in a woman's dress. It's not in the uh, style of a woman's hairstyle. That's the old church that I grew up in. But, but there's a lot of folks that can sound spiritually mature. 
You have to be able to discern the difference because understand that while a lot of people can memorize Scripture and a lot of people can post things on Facebook and sound mature, there's an equal amount of people that knows how to front. There's a whole lot of folk that knows how to talk Christianese language, but they don't have spiritual maturity to back it up. So those are the two things that it is not. So now I'm going to jump over to the book of James. And this was originally going to be an eight-week series because James shows us what spiritual maturity is in seven different forms. Number one, I want you to know spiritual maturity is when your attitude gets saved. You want to know if you've been growing up, how's your attitude? Check. Are you still treating people the way you did this time last year, ten years ago, or has your attitude finally got saved? I know your spirit got saved. I know your heart gave, it, gave itself to Jesus. But how about that attitude of yours? See, spiritual maturity is when your attitude gets saved and your character begins to reflect Jesus. It stops reflecting where you were and starts reflecting where you're headed. And in the book of James, we are given a manual of seven things that show us what spiritual maturity is supposed to look like. Number one. If you're going to reflect Jesus, you have to learn how to become positive under pressure. All my amen committee just resigned right there. Did you hear how quiet it got in this mortuary? James chapter 1 verse 2 says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Did you hear that? When you are facing a trial, rejoice. Isn't that your first reaction too? Every time things start falling apart and everything starts going wrong, don't you just uh, automatically jump up down and say, yippee? And that, doesn't that bring out a, I raise a hallelujah every time something bad happens to you? But that's what James said. And can I correct you for a moment? Every one of us has problems. You are not alone in your misery. We all have situations that are not good. We all have situations we wish that we did not have to go through. However, how you handle your situations, that's what's important. If your problems are constantly blowing you out of the water, if you go through trials and you get uptight, you grumble, you complain, you get negative, you get nervous, the first test of spiritual maturity, according to the book of James, is how do you act under pressure? Remember, the Bible tells you to count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Folks, here's a fact. Life's full of problems, which means life is also going to have to be full of problem-solving. Amen? God's not just going to take away all of your misery. You're going to have to learn how to solve some stuff on your, on your own. And, and the question to ask is, do I have the right attitude when I face difficulties? Uh, you can know the Bible backwards and forwards, but you can also be rude and obnoxious as well. So you need to check your own attitude. And if you don't know how to check your own attitude, ask your spouse. The second thing that I want to uh, bring out of the book of James, and again, each one of, these, each one of these points, all seven of these was going to be a sermon in and of itself. So I'm giving you a microwave uh, series this morning. Number two, if you want to reflect him, you have to be sensitive to the needs of other people. James chapter 2 and 8 says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. So a spiritually mature person does not just see that they have needs. They also are aware of the needs of others. They understand that there are people around them that are hurting, and even though they don't understand the hurt, the fact that they are hurting is enough. Can I get an amen? Oh, the nation could hear this part this morning. Okay, hey, I, listen, babies are the only people that gets away with the attitude that I get what I want all the time. Babies don't care that you are asleep at 3 a.m. 
it means absolutely nothing to them. What, what they care about is they are wet, they are cold, they are hungry, they are lonely, and they don't care what your needs are. They're the only people on planet Earth that gets away with that attitude. God tells us that love is being concerned about other people. And I don't have time to preach it. Like I said, each one of these was going to be its own sermon. But Paul even, or, uh, James even gets into the example here that you should never prefer one person over another person. See, that just eliminates racism right there. That eliminates prejudice right there. He says, never prefer another person over somebody else because we're all equal at the cross. So don't judge people, he says, by their appearance. He says, don't insult people. Boys, we could hear that in the nation today. Don't exploit people. Paul said, I can build all the churches in the land. I can write theological articles. I can send out Christian CDs. I can send all of my money to international missionary work. He says, but if I don't have love, all I'm doing is banging a gong and making noise. I'm not accomplishing a thing because love conquers all. The third thing that shows you that you are a reflection of Christ is when you learn how to master your mouth. James says in James 3 and 2, we all stumble in many things. If anyone doesn't stumble in his word, he's a perfect man. All you ladies married a perfect man? I'm guessing. Whoever says sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, never heard what they said. Amen. <laughs> because what we say is important. Uh, what James tells us is we get ourselves in trouble Sometimes by not what we do, but what we say. He gives us a lot of illustrations about the tongue. This is amazing to me because he says uh, the tongue's like the rudder of a boat. It's like a horse's bit. It's like a spark that starts a fire. He says your tongue's like a wild animal. <laughs> and he says your tongue is like a spring. He, he uses all of these analogies to talk about that one little unit in your mouth. And he says that when you put a small bit in the mouth of a horse, you can control the entire horse. He says when a rudder on a boat turns, it controls the direction of the whole ship. And he says your tongue is just like that. What you say can bless your life or what you say can destroy your life. And what you say can do the same thing for other people. You can use your mouth for words of encouragement or you can use your words to bring curses. Have you ever heard somebody say this little phrase, don't answer me, this is rhetorical. And don't look nowhere but right here. Don't get in trouble this morning. You ever heard somebody use this phrase, I just say what's on my mind. Like they proud of it? Because if what they said was what was in their head, what if their mind should keep secrets? <laughs> what if there wasn't a whole lot in that mind? And they're just exposing themselves to you. What if what they're thinking is mean and nasty and hateful and crass? It's better to say nothing at all than to say something rude. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 29 tells us that every word you speak should be a gift to somebody. It should be a blessing to somebody. And if you can't bless them with what you say, don't say it. That is a mark of Christian maturity. You want to know what spiritual maturity looks like? Having a masterful control over this little thing in your mouth. Instead of it controlling you, you control it. Number four, if you want to reflect him, you have to be a peacemaker, not a troublemaker. James says in 4 and 1, 
Where do you think all these wars and quarrels come from? Do you think they just happen? Think again. They come because you want your own way, and you fight to have it inside yourself. James is talking about conflicts and quarrels. He says when you fuss and fight and fume, you do it because you have a desire to be right. So the question you need to ask yourself is, am I a peacemaker or am I a troublemaker? Do I like to argue? Am I one of these people that are always stirring the pot, trying to get people to debate? Do I hurt other people's feelings? Because I know you say, oh, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. I'm just, hey, I, you, you, don't get upset with me. But you have to understand that a real spiritually mature person is not trying to stir things up. They're trying to keep peace. Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 11, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands. I should read that again. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business. And work with your hands. So as you are engaging other people and you are wanting to become a reflection of Christ, remember these words, 2 Timothy chapter 2, 23 and 24, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid argument. Because you know that they produce quarrels. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must, must be kind to everybody, able to teach, not resentful. Remember what Titus 3, 1 and 2 says. Remind the believers that they must not slander anyone and must avoid quarreling. Instead, they must be gentle and show true humility. Remember Proverbs 29 and 22. An angry person stirs up conflict, and a hot-tempered person commits many sins. Remember Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy 2 and 16. However, avoid pointless discussions, for people will become more and more ungodly. Remember Remember Proverbs 15 and 28. The heart of the godly thinks carefully before speaking. The heart of the godly thinks carefully. They engage their brain before they engage their mouth. Uh -huh. uh, it, the mouth of the wicked overflows with evil words. Remember Proverbs 26 and 17. Inf interfering in someone else's argument is as foolish as yanking a dog's ear. And remember 5 and 9 that says God blesses those who make peace because they will be called his children. Can I tell you, you can't put out fire with gas. You have to use water. And today our nation's in the middle of a firestorm. And it grieves me to see people who call themselves Christians pouring gas on the flames instead of water. Everybody has a right to their opinion. I get that. But when you start complaining about your rights, do you understand that as a Christian you gave your rights up? Because the Bible says that you are not your own, but you were bought with a price that you could not afford. He is the, actually the one that's supposed to give you your opinion. I, it's getting quiet in here. I understand that. But we should demonstrate integrity. Especially with what we post on social media and things like that. Articles we share, quotes that, we, that cut other people and memes that make fun of people. We should take the high road. Because we don't always have to be right in everything. Uh, some things are better left unsaid. Some things are better left unshared. Uh, we want our nation and our community to come together and rise from the ashes. We have to be a reflection of Jesus Christ because he is the peacemaker. Can I get an amen? And sometimes before I post things, I have to ask myself, is this water? Or is it gas? Am I, am I helping to bring this thing down? Or am I exasperating the, the flames? Because if I'm pouring gas on it, it's not my place to. So I have to be very careful if I want to be a reflection of him. Can I get somebody to say amen? Y'all hurt my feelings 
y'all, y'all shut down on me. Number five, if I want to be a reflection of Jesus, James tells us we have to be a word that you have mastered already, patient. He tells us within two verses three times. In two verses, he uses the word patient three times. That must mean that being patient is important if I'm going to be spiritually mature. He, he gives an illustration, James does, of a farmer. He said a farmer has to plant his field and has to wait for the harvest. If there's anybody who knows patience, it's a farmer. He plants the seeds, he cultivates it, he sprays it, he hopes, he expects, but most importantly, he waits. And there's not anything he can do but wait. There's no overnight crops. And just like the farmer, sometimes we have to wait. We have to wait on God to answer prayer sometimes. We have to wait for a miracle sometimes. We wait for God to move in our life. We wait because patience is a mark of spiritual maturity. The only way we learn patience is by waiting. So so many times God says, not yet. Many times God tells us, it'll happen, but in my time, not yours. I'm reminded uh, when I talk about patience, and I don't ever tell this story, but because it makes me look bad. I was about six years old. My dad had me in the woods when I was about three or four hunting squirrels and, and different animals. And, and I remember when I was about six years old, I wanted to go hunt on my own. I didn't, I, I, he was with me, but I didn't want him to be the one holding the gun. I wanted to go out and find my own, my own game and, and shoot it. So I wanted to use the 410 shotgun. But he would only send me out with a pellet gun with a scope on it. Well, number one, you had to be a whole lot better shot with a pellet gun than you could with a 410 shotgun. And number two, I was already shooting a pellet gun, so he trusted me with it. I could not understand for two years why he sent me into the woods with a pellet gun and would not let me shoot that 410. Because I shot the 410 on Grandpa's farm all the time at Target. But he would not let me go into the woods with that 410 shotgun. It was always the pellet gun, always the pellet gun, always the pellet gun. And for two years, he made me wait. And I could not understand what Rife Mitchum was doing to me, why he kept sending me in the woods with a pellet gun instead of my shotgun. But when I was a little boy, my dad liked to watch Chuck Connors, the rifleman. Remember him? Remember how he used to shoot? Right from the hip. So the first time when I was eight years old that my daddy let me go hunting with a 410 shotgun, I was sitting on the ground, and he was at the tree in front of me because we were just walking through the woods, and all of a sudden a squirrel run down the tree about two yards from me. And I was in a hurry. (laughs) Now, I would tell you I killed the squirrel, but I didn't kill the squirrel. I vaporized the squirrel. And my dad had to be standing closer to the gun than the squirrel was. (laughs) And with fur just flying all around his head. I can't tell you what he said in church, but I can tell you he wasn't quoting Scripture. And looking back on it now... (laughs) After I've raised my own son, I realized why he made me wait two years, and he probably should have waited another couple of two uh, before he let me in the woods with a shotgun because sometimes patience pays off because we get things sometimes before we're ready for them. Amen? Number six, if you want to reflect him, you have to be prayerful. James says the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man will avail much. If you want to be a reflection of Jesus Christ, you have to be in prayer. You've got to engage God 
in prayer because you realize he has control of everything. You don't just engage him when things go wrong. You don't just engage him when you need something, but you engage him always, all the time, because you realize he is the one in control of everything. Even when I don't see it, he's working. Even when I don't feel it, he's working. So hey, you, you have to be engaging him in prayer. So that's number six. And I preached all that, and, and I, all of those were going to be six weeks of of sermons, uh, but, but because of the virus and all of that, we, everything's getting condensed into this one message. Number seven, you will never learn to see his reflection until you want learn the meaning of one word. And I'm going to slow down. I've, I've went pretty fast through these six. This is my most important point today. You have to learn how to submit. If you want to be a reflection of Christ... You have to learn to submit. How do you like that word, submit? It's a verb that means yield to the power or authority of another. How you doing with that? How you like that word? When we're small and living at home, it means we submit to our parents or mom and dad or whoever it is that raises. When we're in school, we have to submit to the teachers. When you grow up and you get jobs, you have to submit to managers or bosses or owners or things like that. I've told this story, uh, I don't know if it's a true story, probably not, probably made up, but it, it goes along with this idea. Uh, one, one night on a very foggy night, uh, the captain of a ship looked into the dark night and he saw faint lights in the distance and he noticed that the lights were getting closer. So immediately he told the signalman on the, on the boat to send a message. And the message was, alter your course 10 degrees south. A message came back that says, alter your course 10 degrees north. Now, the captain got mad. He's not going to submit. He thought his, his commands was being ignored, so he sent a second message. He said, alter your course 10 degrees south. I am the captain. Message came back. Alter your course 10 degrees north. I am seaman third class Jones. Now he's really mad. Now he's not, not only not submitting, he realizes nobody's submitting to him. He immediately sends back a third message, and he thinks that fear is going to come out of this one. He says, alter your course 10 degrees south. I am a battleship. The message came back, alter your course 10 degrees north. I am a lighthouse. Sometimes it don't matter how big you are, you need to learn how to submit to somebody else. There's always somebody bigger. Amen. And there's two ways that we have to learn to submit. James tells us this, and there's two things that I've never preached. I've never realized it until I was doing, uh, when I was studying for this series. I thought it was going to be a series. There's two ways that we learn to submit. First is by resisting. Second is by moving. Listen to what he says in James 4 and 7 and 8. He says, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Listen to what he says. You resist something in order to submit to something. I've never seen that before. I've quoted that scripture a thousand times in my preaching in all these years. Normally that doesn't make sense to anybody, but in its text it does make sense. We resist evil in order to submit to good. So you resist the devil because you have submitted yourselves to God. So some of us can never resist the devil because we have never fully submitted ourselves to God. We're, so, we're trying so hard to not do the wrong thing that we forgot to submit ourselves to the right things. And that by submitting to the right thing, I'm going to resist the wrong thing. 
And so the first thing that you need to learn, if you're going to learn how to submit, you have to learn to resist. And the second thing comes in verse 8. You have to learn to move. Come near to God. And He will come near to you. Nobody likes to move. My daughter just moved to Florida. Thanks be unto God. I did not have to help her do this this time. Hallelujah. That girl moved about every 16 months from the time she moved out of our house eight years ago. She has just hopped all over Pittsburgh and over in West Lib and just and every time she, Dad, can you come help me move? Dad, can you help come help me move? I ain't going to Florida, girl. I hate moving. Moving is, 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 is a pain. It's a lot of work. Can I tell you that moving from where you are to where God wants you is also a pain? It is also a lot of work. In fact, it's so much work, most folk won't even try it. I mentioned Wednesday night. I, I know a lot of you probably uh, didn't see it, but I mentioned Wednesday night. Did you realize that to get the uh, Israelites out of the wilderness, as bad as the wilderness was, they got complacent there? And in order to get them into the promised land, God had to starve them? Because most folks don't want to move from good to great. So it, I'm, I, I think every time I start talking about uh, submission and moving, I always remind myself about Elijah and Elisha. Do you remember the story of Elijah and Elisha, how Elijah called Elisha? He threw his mantle on him. And the Bible says that Elisha started following Elijah, but all of a sudden he remembered something. He remembered he had a plow and an ox. And he went back, the Bible says, back into the field, and he burned the plow the ox, and everything that went with it. Now why in the world, it, before he would move, before he would move, before he would progress, before he would follow God's call on his life, why did he burn everything? Because he knew that if, as long as that stuff was around, there would be a pull. There would always be a draw back to his old life. Whenever times got tough and he didn't like what Elijah was doing or he didn't like the path Elijah was taking him on, he understood that in order for him to go forward, to move forward, he could never go back. So he had to eliminate the possibility that there was anything to go back for. So many of us have good intentions. It's always the first of the year we're going to do this and we have this resolution and that. And we have good intentions, but we end up going back. Because we have not steadied ourselves to the point where we're willing to realize that there's nothing worse than going back. I want to share with you a scripture this morning out of Proverbs chapter 13. I said this Wednesday night. The older I get, Proverbs is becoming my favorite book of the Bible. It used to be James. It still kind of is James. And it used to be Ecclesiastes. But I... The last five years, I have, I have read more Proverbs. I try to read one a day. There's 31 of them. If you read one proverb a day, you can read through it in a month. And I just keep, I keep regretting. I could preach out of Proverbs for the rest of my ministry and never exhaust everything in it. It is so rich. And Proverbs 13, verse 20 says this. He who walks with the wise will be wise. Do you see that? Oh, it's not up there. I guess you don't see that. He that walks with the wise will be wise. But the companion of fools will be destroyed. Now, I'm, I'm going to say it again because I thought we were going to have it on the screen. He who walks with the wise will be wise. 
but the companion of fools will be destroyed. So he, when he talks about the wise, he says you walk with the wise. Can I get an amen? Stay with me. He says when he talks about the wise, he says he who walks with the wise. But when he talks about the fool, he says you're a companion. What's the difference? I'm glad you asked. Because he very easily could have said if you walk with the wise, you'll be wise. But if you walk with fools, you'll be fools. He could have very easily said that, but he didn't. So you have to go back. Sometimes you have to read the Bible, and sometimes you have to read the Bible. And so I went back and did a word study. And I found out that the phrase, when he says, walk with the wise, that phrase, walk with, stands for transfer. In other words, when you are around wise people, there is something transferring to you that you don't even see happening. And most of the time, you don't even realize it happened until after it has taken place. So when you walk with the wise, there is a transfer of wisdom that is happening into your life. But he said, if you are a companion to fools, and that word companion means one who sets boundaries. You walk with the wise, there is a transfer of wisdom. But he who is with fools has set boundaries in his life. So when you walk with wise, you get a transfer. But when you're walking with companions that are fools, there are boundaries that have been set in your life. And it causes invisible boundaries to be set up that you cannot cross over. And you've got God on the other side of that boundary calling you to greatness. Calling you to healing. Calling you to fulfill your destiny. God's on the other side calling you, saying, come up higher. Come be where I want you. That's not where I've positioned you. I want you to come up higher. And you've got God calling you. But because you are a companion of fools, there has been boundaries set in your life. And no matter how much you pray or how many church services you attend, there is a boundary that's keeping you, an invisible barrier that won't allow you to get past it in order to get into the calling. So you come to church and you hear sermons about going higher and becoming a whole uh, Christian and being, Christian, uh, spiritually mature and you want it and you know you need it but then you leave the church and go hang out with them fools again and you can't understand why you're so frustrated because you're trying to get to God but there's something holding you back and you don't realize that it's nothing more than the company you keep uh, so there's an invisible line that gets drawn around your life when you walk with fools and even though I've got God calling me higher, I'm a companion to people who limit me. You're in trouble when you let your need drive who you choose to run with. Listen, I know people that want a friend so bad they will compromise their values and their future just to be accepted by somebody. Why do you think when you go to rehab, 
They remove you out of your environment. They don't just treat you and leave you where you were. Because addictions are not just to substances. Addictions are also to people. And listen, if we can get you away from them, we have a better chance of getting you free from it. Uh-huh. So some of you, your deliverance is nothing more than walking away from them. The ones who limit you. The ones who are drawing boundaries around your life. The ones that are holding you back. Because you already know the Word tells you that you are uh, more than an overcomer. You know that the Word tells you the head not to tell above and not beneath. You know that the Word wants you to come up higher. But there are people in your life that have just drawn boundaries around you. And, and because of it, you're not allowed to get past them. So you're going to have to choose at some point, do I want to stay with fools or do I want to go up higher because I can't have both? I'm going to close with this thought. It's been in my spirit for the last couple of weeks. Probably the last two months since this COVID whole situation has been brought to our doorstep and people have been uh, forcefully removed from the, the body of Christ and they've been, having to, they've been having to minister to themselves. And I've, I've seen a great falling away. One thing that this COVID has proven, I'm, I probably won't say this at the 11 because they'll be filming it. One thing that this COVID has proven that I have preached since the day I first picked up a microphone is that there's probably 40% of the Christians that if the church disappeared tomorrow, they wouldn't miss it. So far, the churches that have opened back up have about 40% return rate. And I've always said that if the church got raptured, There'd be about 60% of the church show up the next Sunday and wouldn't miss the 40 that was gone. And if this has done anything for me, it's opened my eyes to that's probably true. What I want to show you is that a spiritually mature person should not be still... If you have been in church for 20 years, saved, I know you can hang out in church and not be a Christian. Hanging out at McDonald's don't make you a chicken nugget. Hanging out in my garage don't make you a Corvette. I was hanging around a Corvette last night. I still woke up a Pinto. I, I want you to understand that if you've been in church saved for 20 years, you should, you should not still every day be struggling with sin. Do we all still sin? Absolutely, but I don't struggle with sin anymore. I don't wake up every day still trying to make sure, oh, I got to walk right, I got to be right, I got to talk right, I got to do right. No, that's, that's young Christian stuff. Hey, I ought to be more spiritually mature than that. No, 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 I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a nugget. Are you ready for this? Mature believers don't spend their energy on trying to do good instead of evil, but rather trying to be wise instead of foolish. So I spend my energy as a mature Christian not trying to do right, but... Making sure I'm trying to be wise. Because I have not enough days to make a whole lot of mistakes. Mature believers are making higher level decisions because they have their flesh under control. So now they're trying to do things that are wise instead of foolish. That's why Proverbs chapter 3 says, In all your ways acknowledge Him. In all your ways. Not some of your ways. Not just your needs. But He says, In all of your ways acknowledge Him. And what will He do? Direct your path. So you want to know what to do in your life? You want wisdom? You want to walk according to God's plan? Acknowledge Him. 
Become spiritually mature. Become a reflection of Christ. Because here's what God said. He said, I sent my son to reflect me to you. And now I have sent you under the power and the anointing of Christ into the world to reflect him. They saw, they knew that they had been with Jesus. I want my Facebook to reflect that I've been with Jesus. I want my conversations to reflect that I've been with Jesus. Make no mistake about it, who you're spending time with and what you are spending time doing, other people can see it on you. You can hide it for a little while, but inevitably, the real you, the deeper you, it comes out. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. And you'll look like Him. You'll reflect Him. Stop falling apart every time something bad happens. Can I encourage you? We've been through the most stressful season of any of our lives because we've never, we ne- we've all lost loved ones. We've all went down that road. We've all lost jobs. We've all went down that road. We've all had trouble with finances. We've all went down that road. We've never faced this before. This is brand new for everybody on planet Earth. None of us knows how to handle this thing. Can I encourage you? Stop falling apart every time. Because he's, he meant it when he said, find joy in trial. Take a deep breath. Are you still breathing? Praise him. Stop letting everything that happens in your life make you have a meltdown. Because guess what, Christian? If you let the devil know all he has to do is trouble your boat, he's going to constantly send storms your way. Make sure that as you are gaining, gain understanding. Gain wisdom. Understand that, yes, things are not ideal, but I'm going to give him a hallelujah anyhow. I'm going to spend my days, the days I have left, not fighting evil, but fighting foolishness. I want to reflect him. He never falls apart in my storm. So if I'm going to reflect him, I can't either. He's not mean to other people. He doesn't prefer people groups over other people. I can't either. He doesn't doesn't, uh, say things crass with his tongue, so I can't either. He, he, He is a reflection of the holiness of the Father, and if I'm going to reflect him, then I have to as well. I want to reflect him. I don't want to be like Moses when he came down off the mountain and his face was glowing so bad he had to wear a veil. Of course, nobody knows now. Everybody's got masks on. I don't want to be, I don't, I don't want that. I want people to see me, but to see Christ in me. I, I, don't, want to, I don't want the anointing to be so glowing that they see God because that's an artificial uh, uh, anointing that fell on him and it dissipated. I want a constant presence of his reflection coming off my life. Is that something you want as well? Will you bow your heads and let me bless you this morning? Father God, in the name of your son Jesus, you are the great redeemer. You are the restorer of the breach. God, you, you are the guardian of our souls. Father, we do not want to be held back because we're companions of fools. We don't want to be overcome by the enemies that come against us, Lord. And, and we 
today want to commit ourselves to becoming exactly what you have wanted us to be. God, we want to move forward. We want to, we want to submit ourselves to you. We want to resist the, the temptations of the devil because we don't want our mouths to get us in trouble and to curse our lives. We, we don't want people to uh, see uh, a negative reflection. We want them to see you reflected off of our lives, God. Let every word, let every deed, let every action that is perpetrated from our lives, God, be a reflection of you. Let our hearts and our minds be set on you. Let our lives be uh, an example of what you want us to be. And God, help us to be positive in these dark days. Help us to be faith-filled in these dark days. Help us to uh, examine ourselves, Lord, that we would uh, not be falling into uh, a wasteland, but God, that we would be walking according to you. As we acknowledge you in all our ways, you will guide our steps. And we are thankful today that we do not walk alone. We love you, Jesus. And we're thankful today for your presence in our life. And we pray that as we leave this place, we don't leave the anointing, and we certainly do not leave the truth of this word, but that we leave as a reflection of you. If that's your heart's desire this morning, would you give him an amen? Can you give the Lord a hand clap of praise this morning? It's good to see you. It's good to have you back in the building. I got sick of preaching at that camera back there. Brother J.R. thought I was mad at him. I was always looking at that camera and pointing. But I didn't have nobody else to point at. So we're thankful that you're here. Grateful that uh, um, I, I'm, I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. I got some real strong opinions the last couple of days. 